Thanks, Jenna, and welcome to our Teaching Time, friends. My name is Wally, and I'm on the pastoral team here at Jericho Ridge. And this summer, we're in a sermon series in the Book of Esther entitled Truth to Power. Now, let me ask you, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you felt vastly underqualified or underprepared to speak or act? Perhaps you're facing something or someone right now where you know you should be standing up for truth, but just don't feel like you're the right person to do so at the right time. You'd rather avoid or run than engage and act. Well, let me reassure you that you're not the first person to find yourself in a situation and think of yourself in that light. The account of Esther in the Old Testament is a potent reminder that God calls imperfect individuals like you and I to accomplish his perfect plans. Esther reminds us that at any time, God can call you to be his voice and speak truth to power. Now, you may hear that and be thinking, hold on, you don't know me. There's no way I'm ever going to allow myself to be put in that situation. And I suppose you could be right. Perhaps you never will be in a, in a situation like that. But in all likelihood, as we take a look at Esther's story, God has something to say to you on this front. So I encourage you to be open to God's word and stick with me as we move into Esther chapter 2. Last week, by way of review... Pastor Brad took us through chapter 1 and introduced us to King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, which is his Greek name and which we established last week is much easier to say. And he also introduced us to Queen Vashti. In summary from last week, Xerxes, the king of Persia, was wrapping up a massive six-month-long party to display and flaunt his power and might to the known world. And Xerxes was indeed the most powerful man on earth. His kingdom reigned from India to Africa to Greece, the entire known world at that time. And he was reminding everyone of this grand fact. Now, towards the end of his massive bash, while the wine was still flowing freely, he wanted to parade his wife before his guests to feed his ego even more. But Vashti refused to come. We can surmise that Vashti knew full well why a bunch of drunken, power-hungry men wanted the beautiful queen to come, and she was not about to put herself in that position. And so in all likelihood, she bravely made a principled stand for herself and on behalf of all women at that time. Vashti's disobedient decision embarrassed and enraged the king. So he consulted with his advisors and decided to dethrone the queen so that women in the kingdom wouldn't get the wrong idea about being able to upstage and disrespect their husbands by refusing their commands. The message was going to be crystal clear within the empire. On Xerxes' watch, no woman would ever have such power or influence. And in place of Vashti, the king's irrevocable decree in chapter 1 verse 19 stated that the king would choose a new queen more worthy than Vashti was. And I'd encourage you, if you missed it, to go back and listen to Pastor Brad's initial message on chapter one as it sets the stage and the context for which we move into. We pick up the story in Esther chapter two, verse one. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. Now, according to verses 1, 3, and chapter 2, 16, approximately four years has passed during this time. In that time, Vashti was disposed of, and King Xerxes had marched against the up-and-coming region of Greece with one of the largest Persian armies ever assembled. At the Battle of Thermopylae, the mighty Persian army surrounded the Greeks, but the Greeks ultimately escaped. And even though Xerxes' Persian army pursued and entered Greece and even destroyed Athens, 
Xerxes' troops ultimately couldn't contend with the Greek forces. Xerxes and his army returned home to Susa frustrated, defeated, and once again furious. We can imagine this warrior king angry and sulking in his palace. He'd be walking past his throne room and staring at an empty queen's throne. No one to console him, no one to pander to him or take on the burden of his defeat. And 2 verse 1 seems to indicate that King Xerxes is having regrets about getting rid of Vashti. Perhaps even reconsidering that Vashti's actions had merit and that he had acted rashly and was now wishing he hadn't done so. So much so that some Jewish historians say that he once again acted rashly as king and had the, av the advisor that it had encouraged him to dispose of Vashti had that person now beheaded, which may be why his other advisors now speak up in verses 2 to 4. So his personal attendants suggested, verse 2, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. The king's attendants knew what would cheer up the king and let them keep their jobs, let alone their heads. Historians and the Book of Esther itself give us insight into the king's frame of mind. Xerxes was prone to rash and erratic decisions. He was unpredictable and he ruled with absolute power. So his attendants decided that a good plan of deflecting away from their role in removing Queen Vashti was that the king needed a new queen, a new subject on the throne. Now the king's bed wasn't empty. He definitely had a harem and concubines, but that wasn't enough. His ego and protocol warranted a queen to be part of the royal palace. But what these attendants were promoting wasn't just a, a queen's beauty contest that any woman in the kingdom could choose to enter if they wanted to try and become queen. It wasn't your ancient version of the bachelor Persian edition. Nor was this some noble search for a woman of great character and stature to come alongside the king and rule with wisdom and grace. To be blunt, this is more of a who has to be a sex object, a queen for the king decree. Pastor Brad spoke last week of the horrible treatment women in the ancient world received at the hands of men. Friends, King Xerxes was at the pinnacle of such perpetrators. The king's representatives were going to scour the entire kingdom to find young virgins who were the most beautiful in their region. But parents across the land weren't just offering up their young daughters to this king. The king's men were going to essentially kidnap them and place them in the harem in Susa under the watchful eye of Haggai, the head eunuch. And speaking of Haggai, we should note that sex sexual commodification during this time wasn't limited to females alone. Historians tell us that over 500 boys were regularly castrated and cycled through as eunuchs to work in the king's palace and harem. Think of the brutality of that type of amputation in ancient times on young boys, again, not by choice. This was a horrible, horrible time of sexual exploitation, commodification, and cruelty for the sake of kings and their power. So King Xerxes is going to round up the most beautiful young women in the entire empire, and they'll participate in a sex contest, to be blunt, to see who can please him the most during a one-night stand. 
Now let's jump ahead to verses 12 to 14, which give us further insight into the process. Verse 12 says, Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. And when it was her time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There, she would be under the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Friends, this went on for 400 plus nights, according to historians' estimation of how many girls would have been rounded up from the vast regions of the empire. And for all but one of these women, the rest would live rejected as single, unmarriable, cut off from their families and society. Now let's go back to verse 4 where the text reads, This advice, this plan was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. That verse alone should cause us to pause in anguish and disgust at the injustices that are about to take place. We pick up the story in chapter five, or chapter two, verse five. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who King Jehoiakim of Judah had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. We're now introduced to two more characters in our story, Mordecai and Esther herself. Mordecai, we're told, was a Jew, but he has a very Persian name in honor of their god, Marduk. In addition, he doesn't just live in the city of Susa, but in the citadel, which means he probably has some sort of civil service job in the Persian government. Mordecai was an exile living in a foreign land who had moved up the ladder and for whatever reason had either not chosen or not been allowed to return back to Jerusalem. Because at this point in history, both Xerxes' dad and grandfather, the two previous kings, had already been allowing Jews to return to Jerusalem. But Mordecai either wasn't allowed to leave, perhaps indicating his value to the Persian Empire, or he stayed by his own choice. Either way, he kept his Persian name status, and lifestyle. So we see a Jewish man who's very intertwined with the Persian culture, which wasn't acceptable according to Jewish religion, law, and culture. We're also told that Mordecai was raising his adopted cousin, Hadassah, also known as Esther, which was her Persian name. Now, what do we know about Esther? Hadassah's Persian name, Esther, means star and was in honor of the Persian god Ishtar. We're told that she's an orphan and beautiful. We don't know how or why her parents died or at what point she took on her Persian name. We do know from verse 15 that her father's name was Abihail, a Hebrew name meaning father of strength or might. And that name might give us insight into what he stood for and perhaps why he was no longer alive within the Persian domain and rule. Nevertheless, in the story, Esther is the only one with two different names, which seems to indicate that she lived in the transition and tension of two different worlds, two different cultures, 
one Jewish, which she kept hidden, and one Persian, which she was living outwardly. And it's her Persian image along with her beauty and character that combined to allow her to find favor in the harem and ultimately with the king. Reading in verse 8, as a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. And every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Esther was one of hundreds of young girls taken and put under the care of Haggai. Did she put up a fight when she was taken? Did she try to hide or run? We aren't told. Did Mordecai try to protect her? We don't know. All we know is that he told her to hide her true identity. And now she's under Haggai's care and Haggai takes to Esther above all the other girls. He provides her with extra treatments and special foods, which again would not have been kosher for a Jewish girl. Esther was also given a group of attendants and moved to the best place in the harem. So she's still a captive, but albeit with someone looking out for her and treating her extremely well. Now, interestingly, one of the Hebrew root words associated with the name Esther is hide, conceal, or to be hidden. Mordecai seemed to be living as one hiding from his true identity, and now he has commanded Esther not to reveal that she's a Jew. It's a reminder that even in the pluralistic pagan society of Persia, there remained anti-Semitism lingering from the time of Jewish exile. So Esther acted Persian, talked Persian, dressed Persian, and no one ever suspected that she was Jewish. If they had, her life would have certainly been in danger, which is why we have Mordecai keeping a daily watch, attempting to keep track of Esther, perhaps out of guilt for not making a stand based on his Jewish identity and trusting that his God, Yahweh, would honor, honor this and protect them for taking a faith stand. Friends, this story is filled with conflicting choices, messages, and characters who are a part of God's people and plan. And yet the story resides in the scriptures in such a way that it doesn't overtly cast judgment on God's people. And I think the reason for this is to be an example of a perfect, sovereign God using imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will, which, by the way, is still how God operates today with you and I. This is another story, not so much about the characters, but about God and his sovereign reign. As Mordecai, with all his imperfections, tries to keep tabs on Esther with all her imperfections, verses 12 to 14, which we read earlier, fill us in on what's happening for Esther. In order to prepare for her one-night encounter with the king, it took a year's worth of preparation. Again, speaking to the extremes of this king, Six months of oil and myrrh treatment, six more months of perfumes and cosmetics, and then for the actual night, Esther could wear anything and could take anything she wanted with her. Imagine what would have been going through each girl's mind that defining evening of their life. They must have been scared out of their minds. And yet, if by chance they were selected, they would become the queen of the known world. But if not, in their defiled state, 
they would take a walk of shame and isolation to the harem of the concubines. Those girls would never be able to marry or have their own family. They would never be able to leave or enjoy a normal day in their neighborhood, in the, in the community, in the marketplace. She'd never even see the king again unless he wanted to have sex with her on another night. It really was a terrible fate for these girls. Verse 15, Esther was the daughter of Abihail, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin Esther. And when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. As I said, three years passed before Esther's turn comes to go to the king. Imagine the realization that all the other women, night after night, had been assaulted, rejected, and tossed aside. And now it's Esther's turn. We're told that she was wise enough to ask and acquiesce to Haggai's suggestions of what to take with her. But imagine that walk as a young Jewish virgin. Her heart undoubtedly pounding, not knowing what to expect. Emotions running rampant. Did the guilt eat her up for sleeping with an uncircumcised pagan man? Did she think of her parents and feel incredible shame? Or was everything overridden by sheer fear? All we know is that something happened that night that would change the course of history. Verse 17. And the king loved Esther more than any of the young, other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his home. Mike Cosper, in his book, Faith Among the Faithless, Learning How to Live in a World Gone Mad, describes Esther's experience like this. He says, preparing to meet the king took on a contest-like quality, each girl jockeying for the chance to become queen. Some probably sang, some danced or told stories, other looked for more salacious ways to entice and entertain the king. But in Esther, the king encountered something different. She was beautiful for sure, but she had the character for winning the favor of everyone she met. And Cosper goes on to say that while the other girls went to the king looking to delight his senses and massage his ego, Esther played on his greatest weakness. Remember, this was not Xerxes the Great. This was a defeated and humiliated king wrapped up in his emotions. And somehow Esther had the insight and ability to come with a different repertoire and work on the king's humanity. Her plan was not to submit to the king, but to somehow remain under Mordecai's oversight and direction. And as a result, she miraculously won, quote, the contest. Yes, she was a defiled member of God's people living a double life in a foreign land. And yes, she was still a captive to a pagan king. But at least she would not be banished into the harem of the concubines, never to be heard from again. Verse 21. 
One day as Mordecai, now a palace official, was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. And when an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Esther continues to manipulate and use her position in life to her and Mordecai's advantage. And here we start to get our first glimpses in Esther's call and obedience to speak truth into power. Esther doesn't cower away or so change her character as to acquiesce to the most powerful man on earth. Yes, she disobeys numerous Old Testament laws that no doubt positioned her against God. She failed to tell the truth about her nationality and her covenant with her God, Yahweh. She ate non-kosher food, unlike the prophet Daniel and others in the Old Testament who were in captivity and refused. She had sex with a non-Jewish man who was not her husband, albeit without much choice. And she married in violation of Old Testament Jewish law, again without choice beyond losing her life. Could she have taken a stand against all these things at the risk of her own life and with the hope that God would honor her choices and find another way out of all of this? Yes, she could have, but that's not Esther's story. As I said before, this is a story of unanswered questions where the sovereign, perfect God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. And friends, this is not to minimize Esther's sin. Absolutely, sin grieves God and serious consequences follow. Nevertheless, God is a God who applies grace to the long view of life, and this story is intended to emphasize Him, the one who is at work in all things, in all people, at all times. Case in point, God uses the vile and horrific plan of a pagan king who decides to hold an empire-wide sex contest for his own personal pleasures at the cost of hundreds of young, beautiful women and their families, one of them being Esther and her family. And in that plan, God uses the human quality of physical beauty. Now don't hear what I'm not saying, friends. I'm not saying that physical beauty is sin or somehow against God's plan. God is the creator of beauty. What is against God's will is the human objectification of beauty and the degradation and abuse of those who are deemed beautiful in the eye of a beholder. God's ultimate concern is not if you are seen as beautiful or if you see yourself as beautiful. It's how you as a person are viewed and treated, how you view and treat yourself and how you view and treat others. The first descriptor we read about Esther in chapter 2 verse 7 is that she was beautiful and lovely. And in our culture, we immediately envision stunning physical beauty supermodel type beauty, something that others could never live up to. After all, she was so beautiful, she became queen. But imagine the king's men rounding up the girls for the contest, going into homes, looking at the girls, saying, you, yes, you, come with me. I don't care about anything else regarding you or your life. You just look good. And you, well, you over there in the corner, you stay home. You may be a nice person, but that doesn't cut it. Every girl taken was objectified, and every girl left at home may have been relieved, but at the same time was given a message that you don't measure up. 
You're too tall, too short, too thin, too fat, too this or too that. You simply don't measure up to the standard. And that's a lie from the pit of hell that continues to be spoken into each generation right up to you and I today. Take a look at this video clip filmed in 2006 from the producers of Dove Products. That's a picture of a person who doesn't exist. And there's one for men as well. You can look it up on the internet, but it's too long to show here in this context. The message that you don't measure up or that you measure up because of your physical qualities alone is a lie. The message that because of who you are on the outside, God would or would not use you is a lie. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3 verses 3 and 4. And can I say that while the context of these verses is aimed at women, these words are applicable for both women and men. Verse 3 in 1 Peter 3. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. The outward focus is what King Xerxes and still today the world focuses on for value. God says otherwise. Focus on the beautiful that comes from within. Be concerned with what is precious to God, which is you as a whole person, physical, mental, spiritual. The real you flows from the inner you, so focus on your spirit, your heart, and groom that beauty. Don't focus on your outer beauty. Focus on a gentle and quiet spirit. Notice it doesn't say timid or doormat spirit. Focus on grooming a spirit within you that is humble and that rests in God's voice and pleasure. Because when he conceived of you in his mind and birthed you in the womb, he said the very same thing he said of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. You are good. Very good. The lie of Satan is that you are only valuable because of your appearance or that you're not beautiful enough and humanized to be used for anything of value. Friend, the truth is you are never to be used in any way as a measure of your value. God does not use you to determine your value. He does not use your beauty or apparent lack thereof to determine your value. He does not use your skills or knowledge or athletic ability or the lack thereof to determine your value. God values you because he created you in his image according to Genesis chapter 1. And because God values you, he will always have a purpose for you. He doesn't use your beauty or apparent lack thereof to determine your value. He doesn't use your skills or knowledge or athletic ability. This is the exact same slide as he created you in his image. There. Okay, go to the... Oh, yes, waste. There. <clears throat> we'll pick it up there. Jeremy, you got a little editing. I will make notes. <clears throat> you see, Esther did not become queen because she was physically beautiful. She was still a flawed, imperfect human. She became queen because God had a purpose for using her in his sovereign plan. He valued her, beauty and imperfections included and aside. He valued her because he created her and had a purpose for her. In this case, to speak truth to power 
as we'll see in the coming chapters in this book. So never buy into the lie or get caught in the trap that on the outside you don't measure up. God sees your value from a completely different paradigm than the world does. And another lie that we tell ourselves is that we're not good enough on the inside. Or that, in, in other words, we're, flaw, we're not flawless, sinless enough to, for God to use us. I've said it several times already, Esther and Mordecai are not models of sinlessness. As Jews, they live noticeably in contrast to God's covenant with the Jewish nation of Israel. And yet, God does not wipe them out with judgment. Instead, he uses them in a pivotal point in history to speak truth to power and alter the course of humanity for his purposes. We, humanly speaking, we want to pass judgment on imperfect people. Either we want to gloss over the sin for the greater good, or we want to condemn it to the full extent of the law. But in doing so, we miss a crucial element of this story. God, the main character, is actually silent as judge on these matters. Regardless of their character, their motives, their faithfulness to God's covenant with them, the decisions of Esther and Mordecai are used to move events in some way to fulfill God's purposes and promises. So the prevalence of their sin or the lack of sin is not the point of the story. The point is that God still uses them in whatever state they're in. So let me ask you, are you holding back in your life because you're not perfect? Because you're a sinner? Because you or someone else has deemed that you can't be used by a holy God? Friend, it's another lie from the adversary, who according to John 10 verse 10, has the purpose of destroying who you are. And if he can't do it by objectifying and destroying you on the outside, then he'll keep trying to accomplish your demise on the inside. He'll say things like, oh, you're okay with who you are on the outside? Well, maybe you get a pass physically, but how about who you are on the inside? You're flawed, you're ugly, and you still don't measure up on the inside. God wants nothing to do with you. And if others really knew who you are, they wouldn't want anything to do with you either. Friend, it's a lie. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying about sin in our lives and how it affects our relationship with God and others. At no point does the book of Esther applaud or condone the sins of Esther or Mordecai. It simply remains silent. But God's word, the law, wasn't silent for them growing up, and they would have known that. This would have been a conversation that the Holy Spirit was having with them, reminding them that all fall short of the glory of God and all must come with repentant hearts before God, and that God is a God of ready and abundant grace. But for whatever reason in this book, we're not privy to those personal wrestlings and conversations of Esther or Mordecai with their God. We are, however, privy to them in our own lives. Don't ignore it. Don't diminish it. Don't push it aside. And at the same time, don't allow them to freeze or derail you into thinking that God has no use for you and that you are of no value to him. Because again, your value lies in the fact that he created you in his image and because of that, he always has a purpose for you. So keep striving through your brokenness. Strive in God's love and grace for you. Strive in his mercy and forgiveness for you. Strive in his calling and his purpose for you. Don't miss out on what God wants to accomplish through you because you think he will only use perfect or somehow more holy humans than you. When God reveals evil, injustice, abuse, wrong to you, 
Listen for how he wants you to speak truth to that abused power. He can and will use you just as you are for his purposes. We see it here with Esther. Esther walked a line of Jesus' teaching to be in the world and not of the world as we read about in John chapter 17. She and Mordecai had adopted much of the world around them, names, dress, customs, food, all of which they used to conceal their identity as Jews, as God's people. From the outside looking in, it's easy to pass judgment on such compromise and neatly uh, label wrong and right and render someone ineligible for action. We do it all the time with ourselves and those around us. And to do so is to place the emphasis on the wrong aspect of this story. The truth and encouragement of this story is that no matter the state of our lives, pure motives or impure motives, right actions or wrong actions, God is at work using us imperfect people to fulfill his perfect purposes. Do not discount yourself from this lot. You too are a Queen Esther or a Mordecai because of the incredible grace and the sovereignty of God. He alone gets to make those calls because he alone created us. So friend, what's around you today that's not as it should be according to God's plan? There's so much, isn't there? In fact, it can be overwhelming. So to simplify, focus on where you are in the midst of the things today, in the midst of the things this coming week. Focus on how God is asking you and using you to speak truth into a specific issue, relationship, system, power. I guarantee you that today and then again tomorrow, you will see or experience sin and injustice, abuses of power. They don't have to be on a national or global scale. They don't have to be on the evening news before you speak into them. They may be, and we can list so many currently, such as horrific indigenous realities, COVID-related violence and racism, bullying due to societal stigma, stigmas, the list goes on and on. But friends, they also in particularly happen in our daily lives, in our ongoing relationships, and God orchestrates our lives so that we can step into that and be his voice in the privacy of face-to-face, one-on-one conversations. You were created in God's image and for his purposes, and he wants to use you to speak and act truth into that situation, that relationship, that workplace system, that misaligned friendship, that quest for personal power. Don't let the lies whisper to you by the evil one. You don't measure up on the outside or on the inside. Don't let them render you inactive and without a voice for God. Who are you to speak up? As Esther discovered, you're a sinner whose creator continues to be at work within and through you for his glory, the fulfillment of his promises and for his purposes. So step up and speak truth to power when he asks you to do so. In just a minute, our worship team is going to lead us in singing as a response to what we've heard. And perhaps you're wrestling with your identity or lot in life, underprivileged or privileged, as we know Esther did in both scenarios. Perhaps you're weighing the sin in your life, as I'm sure Esther did throughout the book. Perhaps you're feeling overwhelmed by the evil and injustice you see around your life or in the world. Perhaps you're wondering why God has you where he has you, with the people he has you, and for what purpose. Friend, today is the time to engage those conversations with God. And our pastoral staff is here to walk alongside you if you want to talk it out and pray with someone. At any time, you can push the request 
prayer button if you're watching live, or otherwise you can email prayer at jerichoridge.com and we'll respond to your email as quickly as we can.